So we're continuing on in our study of unconditional election. Right now we are looking at proof from Scripture. We started on that last week, and we're going to continue on that today and perhaps uh, finish the subsection, Proof from Scripture. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Um, In any event, uh, what I want to talk about first off is the four different types of biblical election that we can, that we find. Um, There's number one, let's see. So we can differentiate uh, between the different types of election, which is important when we're in dialogue with others. It's also important when we are reading commentaries or theological books, because there's going to be different types of election they're going to be talked about. And you'll see some commentators will differentiate, especially between the election that we find in the Old Testament and the election we find in the New Testament. So it's a good idea to think about this. It's also a good idea, I think, because it helps us to understand God's choosing when we see that there are different forms of sovereign election by God, that it's not just in one area. The area that we've been talking about is the first one, and that's uh, individual election to salvation. That's primarily what we're concerned with in our study. But it's interesting, I think, when we realize that there are other types of election. And I think what this does is it points us back to God's sovereignty, because it shows that God is sovereign over all things. And this is important. You know, we have to understand the, the complete sovereignty of God in, all, in order to grasp the doctrines of grace. So, number two, the second type of biblical election is the election of some to special privileges. I should say the election of nations, some nations. Now, right off the bat, this may make you think of a nation that figures predominantly in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and that is the nation of Israel. But there are other nations and groups, I think, that um, uh, who God has called to a knowledge of true religion and the external privileges of the gospel. Um, and, and we may not see this particularly in the first part of the Bible, in the Old Testament, but we certainly see it through church history. We see where God has chosen certain parts of the world to receive the gospel instead of others. Now, we must realize that this is not just happenstance. This just didn't happen because of uh, coincidence, accident, of of, uh, events, or human decision. That God is behind all of this. Think about the Old Testament. We read in the Old Testament throughout it repeatedly that the Jews were a chosen people. 
right? Uh, an example, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want to turn there with me, if not, I'll just read it and you can listen. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, I think is a very good example of this. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. No reason that God has chosen them other than it was his good pleasure to choose this people to create, in actuality, create this people by, by calling out Abraham, right? Be by choosing Abraham, this one man up in Mesopotamia, to leave that land and then create a nation from him. And when we read about God's choosing of the people of Israel, God always, not, I shouldn't say always, but frequently, Scripture will point back to God's rescuing them out of Egypt, out of bondage in Egypt, out of the the, what, it, what we call the Exodus, the, the first Exodus, and then realizing that the second great Exodus is the coming of the Son of God who calls the world out of bondage to Satan. So Scripture makes it abundantly clear that Israel rested solely on God's sovereign choice. The choice had no foundation in Israel's own merit. There's nothing they did to earn this. There's nothing they did to set themselves apart. We also see this in the New Testament, this this, um, election of some nations to special spiritual privileges. And we can see how it starts to branch out from just Israel, where Paul, for example, was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in the Roman province of Asia. He was given a vision at this time, of a man of Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And um, let's turn to Acts chapter 16 and take a look at what Luke writes about this. Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 10 if you want to follow along with me. I can do without spilling my water. And they went through the region of Figria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. See how God's involved in the decision on where the gospel is going. They're forbidden to go into this one area. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them again They're guided by God. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, see Luke's using the we here, so he's along with Paul at this time on this missionary journey. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Another excellent example of how God works in providing special privileges to certain nations. At this time, Asia is not receiving the special privilege, but Macedonia is. I think it's just so intriguing. How did Paul know that this was a man from Macedonia speaking to him in this vision? Well, that's a rabbit trail that we could go down and we don't have time to do it, but but I've but there's some really interesting theories on the, how this uh, came about. And anyway, I I, I got to move on. Okay, um, so one part of the world was sovereignly excluded from, and another part was sovereignly given the privileges of the gospel. Now we know that eventually these areas, these other areas that were excluded are opened up, right? We know that the gospel did eventually go into these areas. But we need to think about history in a sense of it being real. At one point in time, it was people were living it. So that means that that, at certain point of time, there were people that could have received the gospel in Asia that did not. And people in Macedonia, while people in Macedonia did receive it. Now think about that. God is making a decree, he's making a decision on who is going to hear the gospel. And being mortal beings, we must realize that there are people who lived and died during this time period when the gospel did not go in there. God is making a decision. There's a sovereign election that is occurring. And that's maybe a little bit difficult for you to think about. But let's be realistic about it. It, 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 it obviously is a fact, and it ties in to this idea of election, of unconditional election, when we talk about salvation. Also, along those lines, it was a sovereign choice of God which brought the gospel up to Europe, then across to the Americas. Think about the gospel, how it moved. It moved westward in a powerful fashion. It did not move in that same fashion at that time to the south or to the east or even to the north. That again is God's decree. That again is God's election. And we think about where the gospel is moving today in power. It's moving in different areas today than it did at that time, is it not? We see it and we hear about it moving powerfully to the east and powerfully to the south. Asia and Africa are being impacted in tremendous ways by the gospel. See how God is working in history. Gospel will be spread to all the nations of the earth at the time that God decrees. And what's just so marvelous about it, is who does God use for this mighty work but his church, but us, those who are saved, those who are elected unconditionally. The third form of election is 
the election of some individuals to external means of grace apart from regeneration. And I'm going to talk about what what this means. So it's different from number one, the individual election to salvation. Of course, when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about being born again. We're talking about how God saves us. Get my notes in order. I had everything backwards here for some reason. That wouldn't have worked well. Okay, so this idea, the external means of grace, apart from regeneration, is um, sharing the benefits of the civilization that has arisen where the gospel has gone. Um, And it's important because we can't say we have no power over where and when we are born, right? Where we were born, according to the secularist, according to the humanist, is just an accident of nature. It's just random chance. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Think about this. Some people are born in pagan nations. They're born in an area where the gospel has not been, has not reached, or it has not permeated, at least, the culture. It's not openly preached. Perhaps it's illegal to preach it. It's suppressed while other people are born in nations, in areas where the gospel is free to be given, where churches can open wherever they like, where preachers can preach wherever they find someone to listen. There's a massive difference here, isn't there? Think about the circumstances of each person's birth. Some of us and, and some people in this world are blessed to be born to good, believing, faithful Christian parents, while other people are born to parents that are non-believers, parents that are pagans. Again, not an accident. It's the idea of the external means of grace given to some people. But all these circumstances of our origins have been sovereignly decided for us. It is not, as some claim, random chance or happenstance. It's God at work. And all these decisions, they play a role in election, in unconditional election to salvation. All of these things tie into this. And when we think about it, if we think about it deeply, at times it could seem to us to be unfair. We live in a culture in the United States that has always valued the idea of fair play, that has always valued the idea of a level playing field to all people. And that is good. It is not a bad thing. But it can get in the way when we're speaking about God. We can't put God in this sort of category because God is in his own category. The idea of fairness comes up frequently, you'll find, and you've probably 
perhaps already experienced this, is the idea of God's fairness comes up frequently when we talk about unconditional election, especially the individual election to salvation. What would you say to this? Is it unfair for God to cause a child to be born in a time or place that is ignorant of the gospel? With our idea of fairness and everybody having the same shot, you know, and that you get ahead or you benefit based on your abilities, your merit, then there's some that may say, yeah, that doesn't sound quite fair to me. But really think about it. How is this to be avoided? Should God have performed his mighty act of salvation before any child was born in order that all would know of it? Well, that sounds a little bit more fair, doesn't it? But how could God do that? How would we have the birth or incarnation of the Son before any other child was born? To make it completely fair. It couldn't have occurred that way. Could God have prepared the world for Christ and the gospel without the countless numbers of people who lived prior to and brought about the exact circumstances, the exact circumstances necessary for the Messiah to be born in an obscure province of a mighty military empire? And if each person had unconditional free will, then one insignificant choice, what seems to be humanly insignificant, could have changed history and prevented God's plan of salvation from occurring. It's mind-blowing. We've we've talked about this more than once. It's mind-blowing the details necessary to bring everything about. And many people miss this. One of the reasons is because we're just focused on ourselves. All that matters is our lives and that around us. We don't think about the very real people that lived before us, the centuries and centuries, a millennium before us, that were part of bringing about God's plan of salvation, maybe through very, what we would say, very insignificant ways, ways that maybe humanly we could not even realize. Maybe it's the idea of a man deciding he's moving from one place to another, a man whose name we've never heard of, and on the road moving there thousands and thousands of years ago, a military patrol comes upon him and happens to pass him by because the soldiers are tired, they're thirsty, it's the end of the day, and they don't want to stop him and accost him and turn him around and send him another direction or do something else to him. And this man is able to continue on his journey. He settles, he forms a family, and there's offspring from that that go on and do other things that maybe are impactful, that we would think are impactful. But that man had to get there, and those soldiers had to let him go on his way. Was that just an accident? It can't be, can it? Because if it didn't occur... Excuse me, if, if it didn't occur that way, and it occurred the way it could have another way, then the plan is off the rails from that one insignificant thing. 
or maybe a dust storm comes up when he's traveling. And that impacts his travel. And he doesn't go where he's planning on going. And history changes. I just want you to think about how God is involved in the small things in our life. Number four. This is the election of some individuals to receive special gifts. Some people are gifted in really marvelous ways. Some people are gifted as painters, as artists. We have many here in our congregation who are wonderful artists. We have others here who are wonderful musicians. They've been given a talent by God. There's others that have these unique talents where they can, they can repair automobiles, they can build houses, um, they can handle finances for other people, do accounting, that sort of thing. All of these things are gifts that come from God. So how in the world does that tie into this? Well, number one, it's, it's an idea of election that, that we should keep in mind, that God does elect some to one thing and some to another. Uh, when I was a child, I really wanted to play the trumpet. And uh, my parents rented a trumpet for me. I signed up for trumpet lessons at school, and the music teacher came. He was a music teacher for the district, and he sat down with a group of us that were learning our instruments. And I think by the second or third session, he told me that I had absolutely no musical ability and should just give up. Which, of course, I think I was in third grade. Of course, I did. Then later in seventh grade, I tried out for the glee club. I thought, well, I could sing. I was told by the glee club teacher, no, this isn't for you. So (laughs) musical ability was not my gift. And all we can all, we laugh because we can identify with that, right? There's all things in our life that we thought that'd be really great to do. And we find out, I just don't have the knack for it. I don't have the gift for it. And there are some of you who encountered something like that and then, but continued and persevered and became talented. Um, so there was a latent gift that God had given you that, and he gave you the perseverance to bring it out and to find it. Some people have a gift of beauty, a gift of a sweet disposition. We all know that one person that just brightens a room when they come into it, right? And we wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be that person? And many of us aren't, even though we desire to be, and I think that is the gift of God that, the, that a certain person has. Well, how does, it, how does that tie in? Think about a beautiful piece of music written by a composer who has in his mind the majesty of God and the beauty of God's creation. And he writes this magnificent piece of music and someone else hears it and it inspires them in another creative act. Maybe it inspires them to write a book. Maybe it inspires a preacher to preach a message that goes out and maybe the book or the preacher's message touches 
a person, and God uses that to regenerate a heart. That's how the special gifts are tied into this. We need to see the interconnections between all of this and not just do what our society demands we do and separate God and the things of God from everything else in the world. God is in every part of the world, not in the the pantheistic or panentheistic way, but it is his world. And he loves it and he cares for it. So these four principles that we talked about, what's important is that um, to realize they're alike in one main principle, that God withholds from one and graciously bestows on another. That's how we tie these into the individual election. There is a passing by with some of these, with all of these actually. Just like there is an individual election, there's a passing by and there is a a bestowing upon that occurs in any of them. And all, all of them involve the working of God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is completely free. We must realize that it's different from our will, right? God's will is the only will that is completely free. And the end of all of this is to what? To glorify God and bring about his decrees. So yes, I am saying it's all about God, because it is all about God. But he blesses us, because he's a loving God. We are his people, and he cares for us, and he provides for us. Now we're going to move on from proof from Scripture, and we're going to talk about proof from reason. Now, I realize that this could sound contradictory because earlier, in earlier lectures, I talked about how we must separate man's logic and reason from God's revelation. Well, we, God has given us an intellect, right? He, he, he has given us the ability to reason and to think, and we need to use that to honor and glorify God. So it is right that we speak of proof from reason. But I think you'll find that we are not going to stray very far from Scripture when we talk about proof from reason. We are not going to do like so many Christian apologists do now and rely on secular philosophy to establish our reasoning. So, if we understand the doctrine of total depravity or or radical inability, which we talked about many lessons ago, then the doctrine of unconditional election logically must be true. If we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to choose the salvation that God freely offers, then God must unconditionally elect us to salvation. 
See how these things are starting to tie in. I think at some point we're going to realize that if you're logical about it, you must be fully five-point Calvinist for this to make sense. That it's really not going to make sense to be a four-pointer or three-pointer or two-pointer or one-pointer. That everything ties in together. What we've got to do is we've got to rid ourselves of our secular presuppositions and what our culture has just uh, steeped us in, marinated us in to think. It, it requires it requires solid effort in our mind to think this through, to think all of this through. And maybe you're realizing this already. You're seeing this already. It's not like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. We look at God's Word and we see things in there that at times, let's be honest, they grate against our human will, right? Well, how does that work? How does that work if I have my own free, completely free, and philosophers would call it libertarian free will? Because we're going to see that we do have free will. It's not that we're robots, We do make choices, we must make choices, but we do not have libertarian free will. I've spoken of that before, just a reminder. That's the idea, and when when philosophers and theologians who make their battle on human free will, when they talk about human free will, they are talking about this libertarian free will. Libertarian free will is that The choices you make are completely unattached, unaffected by anything else going around you. That humans have the ability to just decide, I'm going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, for example. And there's nothing that goes into that choice other than I just decided for peanut butter and jelly. Oh, really, Mr. Philosopher? That means I've never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I don't know what they taste like? And that idea of the taste has not affected my decision? Yes, that's exactly what the philosophers are saying. Now just take that peanut butter jelly example and let's attach it to the sovereign election of God. It's the same thing, or radical inability, or free will. It's it's the idea that we can operate in such an autonomous fashion that we can just cut everything out from a decision we're going to make and just make it based on the facts of the decision alone. I don't know about you, but I think about that, that's humanly impossible. I've never been able to do that, and I don't know anyone else that was able to do it. Maybe if you had some sort of really odd mental condition, you, you could. I, I don't know. But I, I, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't know about that stuff. But for most of us, I think we just can safely say, yeah, that doesn't make sense, does it? So the Arminian view is, okay, in our view, just to reiterate, wait a minute, got myself on the wrong page of notes here. That's why it wasn't making sense in my mind. Okay, so, We're talking about how everything connects in the doctrines of grace, right? We can't lose track of that. If we declare that salvation is entirely by the grace of God, yet deny the doctrine of election, 
we're not only being inconsistent in our thinking, we're being contradictory. Now, here's a big thing for me, is consistency and coherence in thinking, just the way I was trained. You know, if, and you can ask, you can ask my darling wife, Karen, about that. Sometimes I drive her nuts with this. So, um, but if it's not consistent, if it's not coherent, my, uh, my brain just kind of slams on the brakes and I don't have real good ABS in, in my head and I just kind of skid all over the road. Makes it very difficult for me. So many will plant the, the flag of opposition to reform theology um, on that, this idea of election. They'll, they'll, they'll plant it on the hill of free will, if you will. That's, that's where you find most people who are opposed to the doctrines of grace are going to camp out. It's this idea of free will. They miss a very important idea, though, in this. And I think it's one of the most important ideas, that God is totally free. And we've talked about this. We, you've heard me say it again and again. God is the one who is totally free. It's man's freedom that is conditional or contingent upon God. Although we do have this freedom, it's, contin- it's contingent. It means it's based upon God's freedom. It's based upon God's decree. If our freedom, if our free will is unconditional, like an Arminianist may claim, then how does God fit into this picture? That's what I don't understand. If you can do everything on your own, you've made yourself a being where God arguably may not even be necessary for you. Is God sovereign if we are also sovereign? God may give us dominion, but the dominion flows from God's sovereignty, doesn't it? Everything we have flows from God. And think about this. The Bible's inspired writers have left no stone unturned and consistently driving home the fact that God's election to salvation is an absolutely, no questions about it, sovereign choice made by God. There are many, many scriptures, we've looked at some, that demand that we recognize this. And his sovereign choice is founded solely on unearned love from him. Not what we've done to earn his love, but the fact that he has loved us before the creation of the, of the earth, before the creation of all things. He elected us, and he loves us. Why? This is designed to demonstrate before men and angels God's grace and his mercy to his glory. God does something that only God can do. And that should cause us to just lift our hearts, our minds, and our entire being up to him in worship. If God is ruler and judge, then he is free to deal with a world of sinners as befits his character as God. If he's God, he can do what he wants. 
He is God. He can rightfully pardon some and condemn others. He can do this because he's God. He can rightfully give his saving grace to one and not another. Bypass, pass over another because he is God. He is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. This comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The doctrine of eternal and unconditional election has been called the heart of the Reformed faith. It emphasizes the sovereignty and grace of God in salvation. While the Arminian view that man chooses whether to accept God's salvation or not, that view emphasizes the work of faith and obedience in those who decide to accept the offered grace. It's in the Reformed view that it is God alone who decides who it is that he will adopt as his sons and make heirs of heaven. Think about an inheritance. Think about who decides who receives an inheritance. The Arminian view kind of turns this around. It is ultimately man who decides whether he is to become adopted and bequeath an inheritance from God. But we know that's not how an inheritance works, right? We know that's not how adoption works. And Calvinists, those of us that follow the Reformed faith, are often accused by others, including our Arminian brethren, as being arrogant. But I ask you, which of these views is the one lacking in humility? The one that says, I have nothing to do with whether God adopts me and gives me an inheritance. It is his good blessing to me. Or the person who says, you know what? That sounds like a good deal. That sounds like a good deal to me. There's a lot of stuff I can get out of this. I'm going to be adopted by God. Well, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? I think I've, I think I've laid that out. We're going to talk about why does God save some and not others? I think this is a difficult concept for many, especially if you're new to the Reformed faith. There is a struggle that that we have with this. It's a struggle because it affects us personally, doesn't it? We know people that we love and care deeply for that at this point in time, seem to not be included in God's special election. We know people, people that we love, that may have passed from this life, and it seemed as though they never responded to the gospel call. Now, if you hold the Arminian view, which I used to, And I know also that many of you, at once upon a time, have held that view also. If you hold to that view, then it's just, well, it's really sad and it's too bad for him, the dearly deceased, that he just didn't recognize that he needed God in his life. And we could kind of, you know, the the, the blame then goes to that person, more or less. But then 
if we hold to the Reformed faith, how do we deal with this idea that, that God chose to pass over this person, as far as we know? Now, I think it's very important, and Pastor Steve has pointed this out many times, and I think it's important to realize that we do not always know everything that is going on in this world or between God and another person. And God could very well save someone we think is lost at the last moment of their life, and we are not aware of that. So we need to keep that in mind. We need to remember and never forget that our God is a God of love. He is gracious, and he will always do right, as Abraham said. And not lose hope, and not accept the caricature of our great God as a monster by some who say that that's what the Reformed faith makes God out to be. Obviously, there's a lot to be said on this topic. And I've gone about as far as I can this morning without getting into something that's going to take me, you know, uh, up into and past our break time. So I think we'll break a few minutes early. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, You'll have to talk to one another for a bit longer than normal. And I know that's never a problem. So let's close in prayer. And next week, we're going to pick up with this. Why does God save some and not others in our discussion on proof from reason? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this day. Lord, we give thanks that you're so gracious. You're so good to us. We are undeserving of that, Lord. We recognize it is solely your love and your mercy and your grace that we benefit from. Father, I just ask that you bless the remainder of this day, Lord, that you bless Pastor Nelson as he comes forward to deliver the word to us, Lord, that you bless the gathering, the quarterly gathering of our association in Hemet uh, this evening, Lord, and that you keep um, all of our brethren safe as they as they travel there, Father, that we may come together in fellowship and glorify you. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.